0: Barbie. Welcome to Mugglecast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. This week, snuggle up with your favorite furry companions as we discuss Chapter 17 of Prisoner of Azkaban Cat, Rat, and Dog. I'm Andrew. I'm Micah. I'm
1: Ken. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm Laura. And I'm Meg. You are Meg.
0: anything but a Ken. Meg, Aww. welcome back to Hi. Mugglecast.
1: Thank you for
2: having me again.
0: Yeah. You are Eric's girlfriend and filling in for Eric this week, a huge Harry Potter fan. Yes. You do a bit of ghostwriting here on the show, I think it's fair to say as well.
2: I I do uh, read along as you go and I'll take note of things that I'm like, that that could be a good point. And I'll whisper them to Eric before he records.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So this is the Meg. This is the Meg he is referring to when he says, and Meg caught this. I am the Meg. Yeah, I'm the Meg. <laughs> the Meg 2 coming to theaters this summer, actually.
2: I know. Speaking of- I didn't see the first one because I heard that the, the Meg died at the end and I didn't want to see that.
0: Oh yeah, that would be very upsetting for a Meg to see such a thing. <laughs> this is also Meg and Laura's first time meeting virtually. And we learned that Laura is Meg's favorite host
1: it's true oh man you're putting eric on blast like that right here at the top (laughs) of the show
2: well the thing is though i've been a listener since 2005 and laura was always my favorite i liked everyone but i was like laura's got the good voice yeah laura's got the good (laughs)
0: voice
1: You're my favorite.
2: Also Meg.
0: like the girl power thing, you know? Yes, of course. Thank you. Plus it's Barbie weekend.
1: Right. Yeah. We have to have at least 50% female representation on the panel during Barbie weekend. I, mm-hmm.
0: Whenever a guy has to miss an episode, I'm always excited because it's an opportunity
3: to get another girl on the show.
0: We have great male guests too; love them all. However, uh it's nice to balance out the panel
3: well it's nice to be back andrew thank you for welcoming back to the show by the (laughs) way
0: (laughs) you know what uh micah you stayed at my house last night and we hooked you up or last week and we hooked you up with baked goods and and cider made here so
3: i don't need to do any more for you that's uh (laughs) that's fair andrew is a great host uh well pat's a great host and uh (laughs) no they took very good care of me while i was at uh Uh, What'd you call it, the JW Sims?
0: Yes, yes, because you were staying at the JW Marriott (laughs) earlier in the week. So Meg, can we get your fandom ID just to uh, catch everybody up?
2: I am a Ravenclaw. My Patronus is a polar bear, which is unusual. That's fun. Yeah, and uh, my favorite book is Goblet of Fire, and this is controversial, but my favorite movie is also Goblet of
0: Fire. Oh, yes, that is controversial.
2: I know it's it's just it's just silly and entertaining. And I'm like, I'm just gonna have a good time when I sit down to watch this movie. But the one place it isn't silly is the graveyard scene, which is perfect, which is where it needs to be perfect. Yeah, for sure. Also David Tennant.
1: We'll have to have you on again when we're doing chapter by chapter for Goblet of Fire, since it is your favorite book. It's my favorite book, too. So I would love to have you back on for one of those
0: chapters.
3: Andrew, how do you feel being down three to one, Ravenclaw to Slytherin?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Really, nothing's going in my favor on today's episode. I'm getting attacked from all sides. So it's fine. We had a Slytherin on last week. So it's okay. It's
3: okay. Julian was great, by the way.
0: He was. He was. But hey. Our birthday is just a couple weeks away. August 7th, 2005 was when MuggleCast was born. So we're turning 18. And to celebrate, we'll be recording a special episode. And we want you, the listeners, involved. Call us and tell us your favorite MuggleCast memory, and we might include it on that episode. So you can submit a voice message by Friday, July 28th. So quick turnaround. Just as a reminder, our phone number is 19203 Muggle 1-920-368-4453. or and this is our preferred me- method, record a voice message using the voice memo app that's that should be on your smartphone and then email that file to mugglecast.gmail.com. Whether you call us by phone or you record a voice message on your phone, try to keep your message no longer than about a minute and try to record in a quieter environment. So thanks in advance to anybody who sends in a voice message. Also, there's less than a week left to become a patron and order the Patreon-exclusive MuggleCast beanie. This is a knitted, high-quality beanie with colors inspired by our album art, and it's got a MuggleCast patch stitched in. Join our Patreon at the Slug Club level to receive the beanie and a castle load of other benefits. Those pledging at the First Years and Dumbledore's Army levels can also upgrade And by the way, whether you're joining for the first time or you're upgrading, we also do have an annual pledge option so you can pay for a year up front. And we thank you for committing to a year by uh, giving you a 10% discount on that annual pledge. And this is really important. Slug Club patrons new and old must fill out the order form that we posted by August 1st in order to receive your beanie. So check out patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Pledge again by August 1st and fill out the form by August 1st. That's really, really important. It is. Peace and love.
3: And and I've tried on the beanie. I got a chance to when I was in Las Vegas. It is very comfortable.
0: Yeah, it's a great product. We're 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 not selling
3: you a bill of goods here. This is high quality stuff.
0: All right. So with that, let's move on to chapter by chapter. And this week we're discussing chapter 17 of Prisoner of Azkaban, Cat, Rat, and dog. And we'll start with our seven-word summary. This is I could go a lot of different ways here to kick things off. I know. Hmm. <laughs> Serious
1: attacks. Ron. Viciously. When Scabbers appears. Perfect. perfect.
3: I'm so happy I only had to do one word. In that.
1: <laughs> That'll, we we try to rotate that out, Micah. One person every week always ends up with only one word. So this was your week.
3: Thank you, Laura. For that. You're, Since wa- you you're welcome. Since you planned the show.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. That
3: Vegas hangover. I had the
1: stress of the final word. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I had every faith and confidence in you, which is why I stuck you there. I, kn- I knew you would stick oh, the landing and you absolutely thank did. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get into the chapter, Meg, I actually want to throw it to you to discuss some name origins, particularly about the chapter title, Cat, Rat, and Dog. What did you find on this? Yeah, so, you know,
2: most Harry Potter chapters are pretty, you know, clever or informative. This one seems kind of lazy, uh, so I ended up Googling cat, rat, and dog saying, and I found something that could have been the name origin of this chapter, which is a a criticism made against Richard III in the late 15th century by a political opponent of his named William Collingbourne, And he said, the cat, the rat, and Lovell are dog, rule all England under a hog. And in this criticism, the cat, the rat, and the dog were three of Richard III's right-hand men who were counselors Catesby and Ratcliffe and Viscount Lovell and uh, referred to Richard III himself as the hog. And in this chapter, we have a cat, a rat, and a dog at Hogwarts and then in Hogsmeade.
0: Good catch. so
1: interesting. Yeah. I would have never thought to dig that far into this title. I really did take it as sort of a surface level representation of this, that there's a cat a rat and a dog in this chapter. And, you know, they're fighting with each other, obviously, because there's a very clear hierarchy there, right? Um, But it is interesting to think about this through that lens, especially given the fact that there is sort of the results of yet more governmental mismanagement resulting in this chapter
0: when i first read the chapter title or when you think of the chapter title and look at the chapters around it it goes from cat rat dog to moony wormtail padfoot prongs so there was just like kind of a nice flow there i thought and i kind of thought that was more of what was going on but i'm sure there's more than meets the eye here. And
2: you know, the next chapter is the servant of Lord Voldemort. So Pettigrew has three
1: chapters in a row
0: where he's the rat, <laughs> yeah.
1: and then he's Wormtail, and then he's the servant.
2: Yeah.
0: Ooh,
1: that's fascinating. He's literally the rat. <laughs> he is <laughs> literally and metaphorically. That's really cool. Um, I love that, Meg. Thank you for putting that in here. I feel like it was a great way to kick off today's discussion. But getting into the chapter, we can start by picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, This chapter starts immediately following Buckbeak's would-be execution. And I wanted to put like a a pin in this because we are kind of monitoring the time turning that we know is happening at the same time as all of these events, even though as readers, We don't know that it's happening yet. It is interesting to note that this chapter starts with Harry noting that behind them, they heard a wild howling after McNair's axe falls. And based on our prior discussions of closed loop time travel, we've been pretty comfortable in thinking that Buckbeak was ultimately not killed here. So let's be sure to check back in on the context of that wild howling when we get to chapter 21, Hermione's secret, which is where we actually get to see what happens in this moment from the perspective of time loop, Harry and Hermione. It's an interesting
2: uh, comment on emotions that uh, a happy or distraught howl can sound so similar.
1: Yeah especially from a distance, right? Because Mm -hmm. the trio right now, they're pretty far away from Hagrid's hut. So they're not really getting to hear the full context of anything that's being said down there. They can't see what's going on because they're not looking. If they were, they might, you know, see themselves, which would be a problem. (laughs)
3: Right. Yeah. It, it's really cool to note these moments. I think you all pointed one out at the end of the last chapter too. I think it might have actually been Meg's point that Eric read It was. Uh, <laughs> the the door closing, yeah. which was actually Harry and oh, Hermione yeah. going into the broom cupboard. Uh, and yeah, I'm I'm still getting used to all this closed. What is it? Closed loop time travel. I'm. I don't yeah. know. I. I it must be the time difference from Vegas. Uh, I'll get I'll, I'll get it. <laughs> Micah, the, you've I'm been sure. back for almost a week. <laughs> no, no, no. A couple days.
0: I
1: will say, Micah, not to kind of invalidate your troubles with time right now, I think our trio is going to be facing some larger challenges in these coming chapters. Um, but continuing in this chapter, as the trio sneak back up to the castle... Scabbers continues struggling madly against Ron's best efforts to keep him contained, and Crookshanks' arrival is announced first by his gleaming yellow eyes, at which point Scabbers bolts and Crookshanks takes off after him.
3: I was wondering if we thought that this was premeditated on the part of Crookshanks, Was Crookshanks actively shadowing Harry, Ron, and Hermione waiting for Scabbers to show back up? I'm thinking back a couple of chapters ago that Crookshanks pops up following Quidditch practice when Harry and Ron are going back up to the castle. So in my mind, Crookshanks has just been waiting for the right opportunity. We know that he's part Neasel. We know that he has a different level of intelligence than just your average cat. So this was the moment I think that he was waiting for and as we see Sirius was also waiting for.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah. I think that's right. He Kirkshanks was also working with Sirius. They were spotted together. I I think you're right.
1: Do you all think that Kirkshanks knew that Scabbers was hiding in Hagrid's hut and that's why he was spending so much time out on the grounds? It's possible, yeah. I can imagine, with Crookshanks's intelligence.
2: But that makes me think, why would Scabbergrew choose Hagrid's hut as a place to hide? Like, why wouldn't he just, like, book it across the country?
0: Because he's a little rat. <laughs> 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 with tiny paws.
1: Yeah,
2: I don't know. Well, we,
1: <laughs> we also know that he's awaiting his opportunity to help Voldemort rise again, right? And he's so close to Hogwarts and to Harry, which are two pretty pivotal things for making that happen. So maybe he's hanging close because he's wait. He too is waiting for the right opportunity, and it just so happens. Yeah, the stars align.
0: <laughs> he's staying in the know by being in Hagrid's hut. Hagrid's sitting there at the end of each day, probably getting drunk and like recapping his day out loud to Fang. <laughs> So Scabbers in on all the intel. It's true. I
2: mean, he chose the Weasley family because he wanted to keep up with the uh, the Wizarding news, what was going on.
1: Yeah,
0: keeping up with the Weasleys coming soon to Bravo.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that would be a much more interesting show than the one um, you're referencing. <laughs> I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, I have another uh, combo name here for everyone: Grimius um, for the grim slash serious. So Grimius takes advantage of the subsequent fray between Ron, Crookshanks, and Scabbers to strike. And Harry and Hermione soon realize that they are actually in the shadow of the Whomping Willow, and they have the beating to show for it after the fact. Meanwhile, the dog, aka Sirius, drags Ron into the secret passageway at the Roots. This was, I think, a pleasant surprise as a reader. I think this is written in such a way that it's a little bit disorienting. As they're running around the grounds, they don't really know where they are. You, as the reader, don't really know where they are until somebody gets smacked by a branch, and you're like, "Oh crap!"
0: <laughs> Honestly, like I'm surprised they weren't like more seriously injured. I mean, this is the Whomping Willow we're talking about.
1: Yeah. Something that I wanted to ask y'all, though, I noted reading this chapter, and I had forgotten about this, but Sirius's Animagus form is really strong, apparently. He's dragging a nearly fully grown person, and he's pulling so hard that he breaks Ron's leg, trying to get him into the secret passageway. Yeah. How big is he? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think big think pretty big. <laughs> big dog and how
2: does muscle mass like work between human and animagus because when we're in the shack harry's like oh look at this skinny man like he's been living oh. off of prison gruel for 12 years such a like good that point. doesn't really
0: build muscle and yet he can pull a human a a, a teenager yeah i don't mm. i don't know i mean I'm kind of imagining Ron, Ron's leg being broken by just like how exactly it was pulled. It was pulled like maybe in a really bad direction. Your leg normally does not go. And I guess when he's in his animagus form, he is stronger. It's just as simple as that.
1: Yeah. As we've established, though, with our conversations around physics and mass, that's not how any of this works you can't just make mass appear out of nowhere to suddenly make you this muscular olympic level dog and then lose all of that mass when you transition back into this skeletal human yeah likewise how does pedigree turn into this tiny little rat when he's a
2: full-grown man (laughs) right how is that not the heaviest rat (laughs)
3: <laughs> that you've ever held <laughs> <laughs> fat rat uh but uh i'm also curious too for for serious it has to take quite a bit of energy for him to even transform into his animagus form so you would think that that would drain him even more um but i'd like to think in this moment it's all adrenaline like he finally has pedigree where he wants him and he is not giving up under any circumstances and i feel like that's really is what's driving him and pulling ron under the tree ron you know we talked about what was it a couple chapters ago was it going to be okay if ron was just a casualty in the moment well it's kind of what happens here ron's leg is a casualty of the moment because sirius just wants pedigree that badly
1: yeah, it's a great point. It just shows the level of desperation at this point, and maybe a little bit of that greater good mentality that we like to criticize Dumbledore for so much. Oh, Dumbledore. In thinking, yeah, I might <laughs> I might hurt this child, but I really have to kill his pet rat.
3: We <laughs> might up his lie count in this chapter. Just going to throw that out there right Ooh. now. Yeah.
1: You know, I've been thinking we might need to rebrand the Dumbledore lie count because it's not working for us very well. Oh, yeah. Um, How about that? Hmm. Yeah.
3: Well, he's not showing up. That's part of the <laughs> we gotta, problem. We
1: got to move the goalposts. Well, also, the thing about Dumbledore is his lies are all lies of omission. And when you start breaking them down, it becomes hard to actually call them lies. Because he's never he's never not truthful. How
0: about
3: crimes? The
1: crimes of Dumbledore. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Crimes of Dumbledore. (laughs)
1: Crimes count. (laughs) Uh,
3: I did want to connect the threads here for just a moment. Uh, When Sirius takes Ron, it causes Harry and Hermione to chase them to the Shrieking Shack. And this reminded me of Order of the Phoenix when Voldemort takes, in quotation marks, Sirius, which causes Harry and the DA to chase them to the Ministry. And both obviously involve Sirius.
1: Yeah, we've got a few threads to connect today, I think. Um, And this is, it's a good one. And it's interesting, too, to think about um, sort of the the impetus that kind of led to both of those things happening. In this book, it's, you know, Harry doing, I think, the very obvious, innocent and brave thing to do, which is trying to save his friend. And then in Order of the Phoenix, he's also doing the innocent and brave thing and trying to save his godfather. But in that book, he actually gets tricked. And that leads ultimately to Sirius's death. Well,
2: this one is a bit of a trick also, because Harry's going after him thinking, this
1: dog is about to eat my best friend. Yeah. And then, no, that's that's not the case at all. Yeah. And he still thinks that Sirius is responsible for getting his parents killed, which mm-hmm. also gets turned on its head. Over the next couple chapters here. Well, moving on, we see that Kirkshanks talking about that knot in the tree is key to stopping the willow's attack. And Hermione seems to question him for the first time in the story, where she's like, Crookshanks, and she says it uncertainly at notes, and then asks, How did he know? So it's interesting to see Hermione kind of for the first time, at least vocally and outwardly. Acknowledging that something is up with Crookshanks. Well, she also
2: kind of takes accountability for the first time when Crookshanks first shows up and they think that he's, you know, freaking out scabbers, and she says, Crookshanks, no, go away. I think that's the first time that she's ever said to Crookshanks, leave
1: so that this rat can live. Yeah. (laughs) And also so that she, you know, doesn't have another fight with her friends. I mean, she only just recently stopped. Fighting with Harry and Ron, and she's probably thinking, "Oh my God, Crookshanks! Please no, <laughs> please stop." <laughs> um, so, speaking of Crookshanks, Harry and Hermione follow him down the secret passage under the Whomping Willow, and ultimately find themselves, dun dun dun, in the shrieking shack. And we get a pretty immediate clue that whatever has been in the shrieking shack is not a ghost. Uh, Harry notes that a wooden chair he sees has large chunks that have been torn out of it, and one of the legs had been ripped off entirely. He then even notes a ghost didn't do that.
3: Yeah, and it shows how deeply Lupin is affected when he transforms, right?
1: Yeah. And we get- Some more background on that, I think in the next chapter where Lupin talks more about his transformations, what they were like for him and how painful they were, honestly, before the Wolf's Bane potion was invented. So it would explain why this place is in such tatters. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, they find Ron and they discover very quickly that the dog is not there anymore, but they're still not alone Sirius Black is there. And I have to say, Sirius really isn't doing very much in this first interaction with his godson to make <laughs> himself not seem evil. Um, he starts by making sure the entire trio is disarmed. He thanks them for not going to get a professor and says, I'm grateful. It will make everything much easier. <laughs> then, when they're talking about him killing Harry, He says, or or they're like, you'll have to kill all three of us if you want to kill Harry. He says, there will only be one murder here tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And then when Harry finally loses it and attacks him, physically attacks Sirius, Sirius pushes back. He's ultimately choking Harry and saying, I've waited too long.
0: (laughs) Wouldn't he be great to go out on a date with? He'd make a lot of great first impressions.
2: Yeah, He's I, just a drama queen. <laughs> a
0: drama queen. Uh, you know, he
2: could say, he could say, I don't want to kill you guys. But he's like, why would I say that when I could say there will only be one murder? Here <laughs>
0: he's been yep. cooped up for a while. He's <laughs> forgotten how to interact with other people, certainly other people he cares about. It's It's been a while since he's seen somebody he, he cares about. Also, this is really fun to read. I mean, when you're reading it the first time, even the second time, knowing what ends up happening... It's it's purposely misleading you to think that the trio really is in danger, and I, I think it's just a lot of fun to read back in hindsight to see how, it, how Rowling played it all out.
3: There's definitely some clues here, though, that Sirius is not what he appears to be, though, because he does disarm the trio. He could have killed Ron. He could have killed Harry and Hermione right when they came into the room, and he chooses not to. And there's also a moment a little bit later on in the chapter where he tells Ron, you know, sit down or you're going to injure your leg even more. And it's like, well, why would somebody who's trying to do them harm care about Ron in that moment?
1: Yeah. Sirius definitely, I think, warms up over the course of the chapter. And I think there are a couple of things we can attribute this to. It is funny to read it back, knowing what we know now. And thinking like, wow, Sirius, way to make yourself look like a murderer, honestly. But, you know, one, from a writing perspective, this was necessary to maintain the plot and build up the tension before the climax. Um, but this is Sirius's first time actually meeting Harry face to face since he was a baby. So he's probably incredibly nervous. He's also got. Peter Pettigrew in the room, the person who's responsible for the deaths of his best friend and Lily, um, plus the person who's responsible for landing him in Azkaban for 12 years. So there's probably a lot of adrenaline going on here. And just to give a shout out to uh, Kyle in our discord, maybe some PTSD going on as well. So it definitely explains that, you know, why Sirius might not be Behaving totally rationally in this moment, but it is still funny to read uh, with the totally. foresight of knowing what happens.
3: It it actually reminds me, Andrew, of Finn. You know, nothing was going to stop him just a couple <laughs> nights ago from, you know, jumping all over me. We'll use the uh, PG version, and uh, that's very much <laughs> what Sirius is doing in this moment. To your point, uh, Laura, like he has what he wants within reach, and nothing is going to stand in the way of him getting what he wants.
1: Harry is finally able to take out some of his frustrations on Sirius. He really beats the heck out of him. Sirius has like a, like a bruise forming on his chest. I think like a black eye. Harry really lets him have it. But before Harry is able to take it much further, Kirkshanks leaps onto Sirius's chest and just stares up at Harry. Harry's pointing his wand at both of them, and he thinks in the moment, well, if I have to kill both of them, and if this stupid cat is on his side, so be it.
0: (laughs) I never liked this cat anyway. Yeah. (laughs) I I was thinking, though, maybe there's some symbolism going on here. Crookshanks leaping onto his chest where the heart is. I'm kind of wondering, is this Crookshanks' way of saying he's one to love? He's a good one.
1: I think so. I think it's also pretty natural for an animal, because like they they understand. I think some basics of human biology. Just spending so much time around us, they have sharper hearing than we do, so they can hear our heartbeats. For example, I could see Crookshanks identifying that as like this is the most vital part <laughs> of this person's body so i'm going to protect it and it makes me wonder if measles have any sort of protective ability we do Ooh. see at least in hogwarts legacy that you can use neazle fur to increase the strength of um you know your armor that you're wearing i know you oh. can use it in potions as well so it does make me wonder if there's any protective properties at play here
3: I'm with Harry, two for the price of one here. (laughs) Ron will be thrilled.
1: (laughs) Well, we hear Hermione let out a dry sob in this moment because she clearly thinks that Harry's about to do something to both Crookshanks and Sirius. I have to ask, what is she thinking in this moment? It's her cat who she's defended all year. He is protecting the man that they believe to be out to kill her best friend At the same time, she obviously does not want to watch her cat die.
0: Yeah, I think she's also thinking, you know, this is also in the same time where they just heard Buckbeak being killed. Now she's potentially about to lose another animal, another beloved animal. It's all too much. She's also she also might be thinking Crookshanks is a traitor.
2: Well, and also their whole friendship kind of fell apart because of the death of a pet um like thing with scabbers ruined everything for months uh and and harry kind of loses his humanity for a moment there like you know he doesn't he doesn't even say so what if crookshanks has to die too he says the cat
1: yeah
0: yeah it's also reminding me of um the iconic shrek franchise character puss in boots When he does the super big, cute eyes to try and get what he wants. That's basically what this is giving. I mean, they're even the same color, so.
2: (laughs) I mean, if measles are productive, maybe he's got a little sword he could whip out. (laughs)
0: Maybe. Totally. By the way, the new Puss in Boots on uh, Peacock is very, very good. Highly recommend.
3: And I do like how you dropped that right in the Discord.
1: (laughs) I have it linked We had it ready.
3: Now I can't stop (laughs) looking at the discord uh but isn't that cute very cute the the other thing that came to mind in this moment and i know that the theory was debunked i believe by the author but for a long time there was a theory that Crookshanks actually belonged to the potters because in one of the kind of memories or or i think it's in the note that um they find in grimmauld place it's noted that the potters had a cat And so wouldn't have been cool if this cat knew Sirius from all those years ago and is now kind of jumping in to protect him.
1: I do remember that theory. I don't think that we get an answer as to the lifespan of a Neasel or how that would impact Crookshanks being part measle. because he would be a pretty old cat. I would think a measle would live
2: longer than an average house cat. But also, you know, Harry is 13 and cats can live up to like 20, 25 years old if they're healthy and
1: taken care of. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we could. I know that it was debunked by the author, but we like creating our own canon on this show, so we
0: could <laughs> declare it. We have to do it once with Meg here, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm down.
0: Meg, you say it.
1: I declare canon. <laughs> Perfect. So while we're talking about Sirius and Crookshanks here, I just wanted to pose a quick question to the panel. Do we ever get an answer as to how Sirius and Crookshanks were communicating? It's clear now more than ever that the two are in cahoots. And we learn even in the next couple of chapters that Sirius and Crookshanks have been working together all year. Sirius says as much. But how does a wizard and a magus communicate with an animal?
2: I would imagine it's similar to just how animals communicate with other animals. Um, they they sort of have a language of their own. Body language is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we kind of learn that when you're an animagus and you turn into an animal, it's not like you're with your human mind in a different body. Like there is something you do kind of turn into that animal, and you do have some animal features, yeah. Uh, such as it's a good point, you know, being able to to talk to other animals.
0: Yeah, I think and that's right.
3: We allow our theory to hold true. The canon that we just declared, then they already have a pre-existing relationship, so Ooh, they're yep. just catching up like old times.
1: They're like, "Set, buddy."
3: <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Oh, I love to think of of Sirius coming and hanging out with Crookshanks in the Potter's house as his uh, snuffles form Mm -hmm. and them having that pre-existing friendship. I think that's cool.
0: And they watch Cat Dog (laughs) on Nickelodeon together. (laughs) Right. Cat Dog, Cat Dog.
2: Yeah. People often think of cats and dogs as kind of opposite, but I know a lot of uh, people who have both dogs and cats and they're best friends.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Just like cat CatDog.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have a dog that acts a whole lot like a cat. So, you know, you can't put him in boxes. <laughs> um, as we're talking about this interaction, remembering that Harry is standing here fully intending, fully wanting in this moment to kill Sirius and Crookshanks. He has them at one point. How is Harry exactly planning to kill Sirius here? He is obviously not capable of any unforgivable curses.
0: Well, Sirius is so weak, as we uh, said a few minutes ago. Maybe just a like, good old-fashioned choke to death, punch him enough times.
2: He's going to Flipendo him to death. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Flipendo! Hey, on an older man, that could uh, probably do some damage. At least make him vomit.
3: There's also a three of them. I mean, they could gang up if they really wanted to but uh i was wondering as i read through this do we think that the voice inside of harry's head that's telling him to quote do it now is actually the horcrux we we've been kind of keeping an eye out for these types of moments and the reason why i say that is that there is a viciousness to this that really isn't harry and i know harry's in the moment but it's almost like that voice is coming from somewhere else that isn't actually him.
0: I was thinking that too, but it is hard to come up with a firm answer here because like you said, he's in the moment, he's just enraged. This is this is a mass murder, a horrible person. But that said, when I did read this, I did think that too, maybe this is the Horcrux talking a little bit. At the end of the day, I think anybody in Harry's situation, if you put yourself in his shoes you would be enraged just like he is horcrux or not
2: yeah i think if it is the horcrux it's majorly tapping into harry's emotions right now um which we know harry feels very strong about because when he uh first learns at the uh three broomsticks that um sirius was responsible for his parents death he kind of he gets very very quiet and 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 dark for a while um and he's got this vendetta now he's he's starting to think like i want to go after this guy i would kill this guy if i could uh and so that that heightened emotion involved would help out the Horcrux. uh but then ultimately you know harry ends up
1: standing there and not doing anything and the moment kind of passes yeah and that's a great lead into a thread that i want to connect here So Harry really wants to kill Sirius here in Prisoner of Azkaban, but he ultimately cannot summon the ability to do so. And in Order of the Phoenix, Harry tries to use the Cruciatus Curse on Bellatrix after she kills Sirius, but he can't because he has to mean it according to her. So even in, I think, what are probably a couple of Harry's most enraged Emotionally angry moments in the series, he still can't summon the ability to cause death or inflict any kind of serious harm on he's people still who good. he thinks deserves yeah. it. Yeah.
0: And he's still young. If this yeah. was a 10 year older version of Harry, maybe he would have gotten at least closer. But yeah, I, I think this just speaks to Harry's heart, and that's beautiful.
2: I mean, we see in Deathly Hallows he doesn't even kill Voldemort with the Killing Curse; he does it with Expelliarmus. Yeah, his
0: old pal, old faithful Tried and true.
3: Yeah, <laughs> Harry doesn't even know, as far as we're aware, what the unfor- unforgivable curses are. Right? He doesn't. He doesn't officially learn them until the next book. But what would have happened? You know, would have just a really nasty curse come out of his wand just because he was that emotional and that enraged in that moment. But I I don't know, like could Harry have done something not even verbalizing a spell in that moment too.
1: Blow serious up like Aunt Marge.
3: Right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: That's the thing. I mean, we've seen multiple examples of how wizards, particularly young wizards who don't have the most control over their magical abilities, can inadvertently cause things to happen. We know that young Tom Riddle did horrible things. Uh, before he even had a wand, and he totally meant to do them. So the ability is there, but Harry just doesn't ultimately have the desire deep down. it's It may be a more of a surface-level desire, but the deeper you go, he just doesn't have enough, I guess, will or motivation to actually see it through. Right. I think that's something we can all relate to, yeah. right? Like yeah. you've ever been so mm-hmm. mad that you just wanted to like hit something, <laughs> but you don't ultimately do it. It's kind of an in the moment um kind of reactionary emotion that I think most people learn how to control hopefully. Maybe subconsciously he's kind of picked up on
2: uh uh what Dumbledore has said about death is not the worst thing in the world, because just a couple chapters later, uh, Sirius and Lupin want to kill Pettigrew, and Harry is the one who says, no, no, give him to the Dementors, send him to Azkaban.
0: I also think, like Laura, you were saying, you know, it's, it's a relatable feeling Harry's going through. I think you're also calculating in your head, like, what does murdering somebody do to me for the rest of my life? I have to live with that choice. That's something that can't be undone. So there's just like a lot of things you're considering in that moment, and I I'm just gonna say it. I don't think I could ever kill anybody. Well, that's I don't a think good I could, thing, Andrew. Yeah, that, I couldn't um,
1: do it. We're we're glad to hear it. Um, mm-hmm. We were all worried, so thank you for <laughs> <laughs> confirming.
3: Yeah, we were kind <laughs> of because you had an obsession with horcruxes for a while.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you make the point about. Ultimately, if Harry had killed Sirius in this moment, he would have had to live with that for the rest of his life. The irony of that is that he is having to live with the consequences of murder for, you know, the first 17, 18 years of his life because he has a horcrux in his head because of Voldemort killing his mother. And Meg, I think you had a couple of more threads for us to connect
2: yeah, uh, some more threads specifically between this chapter and the chapter Percy and Padfoot in order. Uh, so first of all, both of these chapters include Sirius and are named for him, either being the dog or Padfoot. Uh, and in this one, we have Crookshanks protecting Sirius, lying on his heart. Uh, and then in order, uh, it's the chapter when Sirius appears in the fire, and the trio were talking to him in the Gryffindor common room. And Crookshanks sees Sirius, and he's trying to get forward to him. He wants to. He wants to nuzzle him and he's at risk Mm. of singeing his whiskers. Uh, But then also um, when they first arrive into the Shrieking Shack, Sirius notes that, you know, Harry has come running after Ron. He says, I thought you would come after your Ron. Your father would have done the same for me, uh, comparing Harry to James. But then in the Percy and Padfoot chapter, Sirius is suggesting, hey, how about we have some fun, meet up in Hogsmeade, I'll be Snuffles and they all vehemently say, no, no way. And Sirius is disappointed and says, you're less like your father than I thought. And in both of these instances, first Harry being compared to James and then being compared against James, he's really unhappy with it. Yeah. It's a different kind of unhappiness. It's uh, first, you know, indignation, anger, and then it's later it's disappointment. Uh, But it's these two... Contradictory statements, and both times Harry feels kind
1: of rotten inside about it. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's an interesting contrast, too, given the way that Harry feels about Sirius very differently in mm-hmm. each of these instances. Um, it's also interesting to look at the way that Sirius kind of weaponizes this comparison when necessary. You know, he'll use the comparison to flatter Harry in some cases, but then in other cases where Harry isn't doing what he wants him to do, he's like, well, you're actually not all that much like your dad. Mm -hmm. It's pretty messed up. I mean, we have to remember Sirius is like in his early to mid thirties and he's talking to a child. Yeah. Well, Sirius is kind of emotionally stunted. He's kind of 12 years behind.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Emotionally,
0: socially.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, everyone's favorite Defense Against the Dark Arts professor, Professor Lupin, does enter the scene. And he pretty quickly puts the pieces together in a way that is confusing for the trio and for first-time readers. He's talking to Sirius and asking him, How? Unless you switched? Without telling me? So I have to ask... Why would Sirius not have told Remus after the Potters were murdered that he and Peter had switched? I understand that he was in a blind rage and he just wanted to kill Peter, but it's kind of surprising to me that he wouldn't at least want one of his best friends to know that he didn't murder their other friends.
0: Yeah. So my best guess is he still ultimately blamed himself. For what happened? And could it also be there was so much evidence that suggested it really was serious? The alleged muggle murders, Pettigrew's missing finger. He thought, like, who would believe him, especially after something so shocking as James and Lily being killed?
2: And he's really feeling that guilt even now when mm-hmm. Harry says, You killed my mom and dad, and Sirius says, I don't deny it. Yeah. Um, if he's feeling that now, then pretty sure the day after the murder he was thinking this is terrible i i have done a huge mistake here um maybe i deserve to you know be locked up forever
1: yeah right well it was his idea that he and peter Mm -hmm. switch as secret keepers right because he thought nobody would ever suspect that peter would be chosen as the potter's secret keeper yeah yeah So he thought, and I mean, can we really blame him? You know? Yeah. Sirius was the obvious choice for secret keeper. So he figured if Voldemort was going to come after anyone, it would be him. So lead him, you know, lead him off the scent, throw him off the scent. Excuse me. Which is funny because he's a dog dog. (laughs) animatist. I wonder if it was ever
2: considered to make Lupin the secret keeper.
1: Yeah. Which is interesting. (laughs) There are a lot of
3: good options, not named Peter Pettigrew. So that's part of the you know the discussion that can happen here. But I think this also goes back to what we've talked about a lot, and that is the fact that the ministry doesn't do a full blown investigation into what actually happened here, because if they would have done their due diligence, they likely would have found out that Sirius was innocent much earlier on, and they would have begun the hunt for Peter Pettigrew. And so this is, I think for us as readers, the beginning of us, and as we get more information in this chapter and the chapters that follow, it's like our introduction to the ministry not really being what it appears at face value. And I'm thinking as I'm reading this, what kind of a revelation is this for Lupin? You know, he's been also carrying this with him for the last 12 plus years that his best friend is responsible for the death of Lillian James. And now in this moment, he realizes for the first time that it wasn't serious. So, you know, just like the emotion that must be coming up in Lupin at this moment has to be pretty powerful.
0: While also dealing with the trio losing their minds and he remains calm. It's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, Micah, you're totally right. Lupin's whole understanding of the world has been turned upside down. a friend that he thought has been dead for thirteen years is actually not dead and was actually the perpetrator and caused Lillian James's death, and Sirius was wrongfully imprisoned that entire time. It's a lot to take in in like an hour or so yeah. Sirius serious doesn't even say anything but lupin figures it out
0: and also in the shack where you're normally there to just like rage out and yeah, be aware of having
2: some ptsd right now that's
1: the <laughs> yeah. thing like lupin is literally in the he's in his trauma house
3: yeah like, literally right right
1: <laughs> and yet he is the most level-headed person in the room
3: <laughs> totally. And Amazing. Yeah, like Andrew was saying, he's he's doing these mental gymnastics to understand what's happening in front of him, but also to kind of hold off the trio so that they don't completely lose their minds and, and continue to try and attack both himself and Sirius.
1: He's the only adult in the room. Very shortly after Lupin's introduction to this scene, he realizes- the truth. The pieces all click for him. And he hugs Sirius, embraces him like a brother. And this is where we start getting into some interesting uh, discussion for this chapter. I think this chapter really demonstrates how otherwise well-meaning people, when they're under high amounts of stress, they're really afraid can kind of revert to some some of their, you know, less pos- less positive versions of themselves and even allow um societal interpretations to kind of overtake and cloud their judgment and say some things that they maybe wouldn't actually say if they were um in a more level mental place. So after Lupin hugs Sirius, Hermione outs Lupin in a rage. She tells everyone that Lupin is a werewolf. That's why he's been missing classes all year. And I think it's really commendable of Lupin because he remains totally calm throughout this entire interaction, including when Hermione lets the cat out of the bag that he is actually a werewolf. So he is trying to calm Harry and Hermione down and explain, unlike Sirius, earlier in this interaction. So props to him. But something we want to call out here, because it'll be important in the coming chapters, Lupin looks remarkably calm, though rather pale. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh.
3: This isn't really a serious question, but it It popped into my head. Did Hermione or Lupin not check the moon cycle before they left? (laughs) It's just funny that they're engaging in this whole conversation and nobody thinks, oh, by the way, it's a full moon tonight.
2: Yeah, you'd think Lupin would have been in his office preparing. Like, you know, he's got his Wolfsbane potion. He's shut the door. He's, you know, got some tea and candles. He's ready for his transformation. (laughs) And then he runs out. But I guess with the shock of seeing, peter Pedgrew on the map uh which that is the moment when he first learns i think in the movie it's kind of more confusing because there's that scene where harry says i saw someone on the map who i know to be dead and lupin says that's not possible but it plants the idea uh but in the book literally right now is when he has learned that his friend is actually alive
1: yeah and it's a lot so for lupin you're right meg this is all happening Within a really short span of time, the movie gives more time for it to kind of stew. But Lupin, you're right. He was probably in his office. He probably already had his Wolfsbane potion. He was ready to take it. And then this happened. He saw Sirius and Peter on the map.
2: And he might have run out there with the intention of, I'm going to deal with this and then I'll get back to my office. But then he has the shock of, oh, Sirius is not the bad guy here. And that I imagine that would just like wipe out everything from his mind of what else he was planning to do that evening.
1: Right. And he's thinking he has to protect these students too. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he was watching the map in the first place because he knew Harry, Ron, and Hermione were gonna try to sneak down to see Hagrid. So yeah, he's he's definitely losing track. But I want to unpack this moment where Hermione reveals Lupin is a werewolf. She is clearly panicking. And she's making some pretty damning assumptions about Lupin based on her knowledge of him being a werewolf, which to Lupin's point, she gets correct, but she literally gets everything else wrong. And I thought that we could draw on our conversations from earlier on in this book about lycanthropy being an allegory for HIV and AIDS And this really raises kind of a sobering point about how even the most well-meaning people can fall prey to fear-based assumptions. And that's what all three of them honestly do, particularly Ron and Hermione do in this moment.
0: Yeah. And I think what's happening here, like you said, Hermione is panicking and this is the weapon she has in this moment.
2: And we know Hermione does not do well under pressure. No, yeah,
0: yeah, she doesn't. But also, there's some attitude here with Lupin, I think, because of how she's going off, which I'd say is a little unteacher-like.
1: I, I actually kind of disagree. I think the way that he does this, the way he handles this entire interaction, is still showing that he is a teacher, even in this moment. And sometimes, as a teacher you might have a student say something that is truly out of line. And while it's not your place as a teacher to, you know, be handling education and teaching morals and values and all of those things, it is acceptable to give kind of a quick course correction in the moment to say, well, I... I, I'm used to seeing better from you, honestly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's what Lupin is telling Hermione here.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. And also, he doesn't just say, no, you're wrong. He, uh, he makes a point to say, not at all up to your usual standard, being like, you are an exceptional student, but not right now.
1: Yeah,
3: But he does follow up by calling her the cleverest witch of her age, mm-hmm. yeah. not like more than a couple paragraphs later. So I agree with Laura here, and it's not just because Lupin is my favorite character. I, I think that <laughs> I think he's still trying to teach her in the moment that not everything is always as it seems on the surface level, right and And yeah. I like what Meg had to say about Hermione under pressure. She behaves very much as a different person when she she has to deal with these types of situations. She doesn't have maybe, let's say the same type of street smarts as a Harry or a Ron. And though though Ron in this moment is probably just as bad as Hermione is. Um though there could be part of Lupin that's just like, you know what, Hermione, shut the already. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I don't know. I don't know if
0: Lupin's really trying to go for a teaching moment here. I respect the opinions, but um I don't think now's exactly the time to to lay down like some thoughtful
3: It's just here's why i think that this moment in particular by hermione is just vicious it's there's nothing to be gained by it like outing lupin in this moment as a werewolf there's nothing to be gained like what what is she hoping is going to happen as a result of telling ron and harry that lupin is a werewolf like there there's it's, you know yeah what i mean, I mean-
0: yeah, but, like I said earlier, it's it's all she's got right now, like she's scrambling, she's flailing, and this is this is her weapon.
2: She could also just kind of be thinking out loud, yeah, saying like and- I trusted you, I can't believe this. You must have been working together. I should have known you're a werewolf without any you know particular point she's trying to make. It's not yeah. a well
0: calculated move, like Meg said, mm-hmm. cracking no. under pressure here, not good under pressure,
1: and I think you're right on the money, Andrew, when you say it's all she has, right? She does not have definitive proof of anything else, but she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that she's right about him being a werewolf. So she's, I mean, she's kind of building up a straw man argument here, which is what people do when they're, they find themselves under pressure, right? So Hermione is definitely falling prey to that here.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, and if we're being fair, and, and I see this just got brought up in the Discord, is that Hermione does have a little bit of an edge to her when it comes to certain types of creatures. We see her in this moment with Lupin. We see it come up in Order of the Phoenix with Forenz and how she treats him. So there, there's something there. I don't know if we call it an unconscious bias, but it obviously comes out <laughs> in this moment.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair um, observation. I think what we can also remember here is that, you know, these are children, they're 13-year-olds, so they really are a product of the environment that they're growing up in, and fact of the matter is, wizarding society does not take a very fond view of werewolves and any other of number or any number of other creatures. So they are, I think, in this moment, kind of parroting some of the discourse that they've heard out of the adults in their lives. Um, We even see Ron have his internalized lycanphobia show up in this moment. When Lupin tries to approach him because he sees that Ron is in pain, And Ron just yells, get away from me, werewolf.
0: Like, that came from somewhere. Yeah. And
2: it's, well, it's even more heartbreaking because if you're drawing it to the HIV-AIDS comparison, people were afraid to touch someone with AIDS because they thought they could catch it that way. And so for Ron to say, like, don't come near me, don't touch me. I mean, it was a big deal when Princess Diana was shown shaking the bare hand of someone with AIDS. Yeah. But I do think this... It's definitely a product of environment. Um, you know, Ron probably grew up with his parents and brothers saying werewolves are scary, they're bad, they're evil. And then I'm sure when Snape assigned the essay on werewolves, he wasn't there. He wasn't putting them in a good light. He wasn't like, okay, make sure that you include a paragraph about how werewolves are still people. Like, so he's probably in his mind is just werewolves equals bad. And it's it's all he knows, because we see that the next chapter after Lupin has explained everything, Ron is volunteering to walk with Lupin and Pettigrew to keep them together. And it's like all that bias is gone. It really is just everything leading up to that has caused this terrible reaction.
1: Yeah, it's ignorance. And it's the norms that the society are passing down to children. Um, We've kind of talked about this with Draco, too. Draco, you know, at this point in the series, I think we've argued he's a product of his environment. The way Draco is, is more his parents' fault than anything else. And I think we can make the same argument for these other characters, to be honest. Um, To Meg's point, how many times did Ron's older brothers maybe tease him about werewolves or use werewolves to scare him in some way? We know that Fred and George definitely liked to torment their younger siblings. And I'm sure it wasn't their intention to create this kind of fear-based response, but that happens. I mean, I'm an older sister and trust me, I definitely used to love scaring my brother mm-hmm. <laughs> when we were kids. Mm-hmm. But as a result, there's there's some things that he just doesn't like now because I used to scare him with them.
3: <laughs> I really like what you were saying about the Malfoys, right? Because this is totally something that you would expect from Draco, but it's mm-hmm. actually coming from Ron, which happens to be another pureblood family, which shows you that you know, biases and prejudices are not limited to one particular group of people. We all have them, and yeah, I, I definitely agree with what was said. Like Ron probably heard stories growing up. His father works at the ministry, so I'm sure Arthur brought stories back of having to deal with werewolves and and their kind. And so I, I do think it's ironic that later in the series, uh, one of his brothers ends up becoming a werewolf. Uh, so. <laughs> how mm-hmm. that whole dynamic maybe shifts as Ron matures and and I know Meg you mentioned just a couple of chapters he seems to do a complete 180 but um yeah I would assume that you know his whole perspective on things changes once he has one in the family
2: if Lupin were not a werewolf and the only time uh Ron came across someone being bitten by a werewolf was Bill uh would it be different Because he wouldn't have had years of Lupin to look at. All his internalized fear would come up at that moment, probably their entire family.
1: Yeah, it is interesting to think about that perspective. But when you also think about, you know, if we're comparing, you know, the way that werewolves are written in Harry Potter to, you know, the HIV-AIDS epidemic there, and I mean, I'm just speaking to kind of personal experiences that my parents have told me about because they had friends who died during the AIDS epidemic. And you would definitely see kind of a range of reactions from families, all the way from shame that, you know, their child was quote living a lifestyle that would allow them to get this all the way to people becoming more accepting because it was their child. So it's a question of kind of which side of that spectrum do we think the Weasleys would have fallen on if they hadn't had exposure to someone like Remus first. I like to think that they would be more on the accepting side. It probably would have taken them some time (laughs) to get there.
0: Also, Kyle brought up in our Discord that AIDS was very much a big issue in the late 90s when J.K. Rowling was was writing this. Um, he cited a number, he said around 20,000 people died of AIDS in 1998 in the U.S. alone, and of course, many more in um, countries around the world. It was, it was a big issue at the time. And I, I think that this is absolutely the parallel that Rowling was drawing at the time when you think about how big of an issue it was at that time
1: yeah and i mean there's a clear comparison too with the wolfsbane potion because we find out that the wolfsbane potion is really new at this point and at this point in time in the real world um hiv drug therapies were also very new
0: yes yep
1: so she's definitely drawing a comparison um I think it's also really interesting to read this chapter with the Wolfstar ship in mind. For anyone who's not familiar, Wolfstar is um, a ship um, where people um, portray a relationship between Sirius and Remus as more than friends. I think given the clear social representation of a misunderstood chronic illness, combined with the closeness of Remus and Sirius... There is a lens through which you can read this chapter that's actually even a little more heartbreaking when you think about Remus coming to terms in such quick su- succession about Sirius actually having been innocent this entire time.
3: Hmm. Why is it called yeah. wolfstar?
1: Well, because uh Remus is a werewolf.
3: That I yeah, that part I worked out myself.
1: <laughs> and- Sirius is a—it's a constellation. A constellation, dog star. Yeah,
0: just a beautiful name, Wolf Star.
1: Yeah,
2: Wolf Star.
0: They're in the stars. Their future is in the stars. Star-crossed lovers. Star-crossed lovers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, I love it. I know we're thinking about reading and reviewing more fan fiction in the future, so maybe we can do some Wolf Star focused discussions. But Meg, I think you were about to say something. Yeah,
2: uh I mean so much of prejudice against AIDS was homophobia. And to draw that out like explicitly here uh is is very sad. Uh and a moment I wanted to mention also is that when Ron says get away from me werewolf it says Lupin stopped dead. It's like he's he's used to that response. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's like he's had years of expecting that response. And so it doesn't even really hit him that hard. He just he just stops and is like, yeah, this is this is what happens when I say that. Yeah. Wasn't it
0: by the way really nice of Dumbledore to set up the Shrieking Shack? Yeah. I thought that was really nice of him.
2: He even furnished it.
0: Even furn you know, I just wanted to drop in a little Dumbledore love since, <laughs> you know.
3: Yeah, but he makes Madame Pomfrey escort Lupin. To the Shrieking Shack. He doesn't do it himself. Okay,
0: he's a little busy.
3: He puts her (laughs) in danger every full moon.
0: Oh, she's competent. The connection was breaking up. I didn't hear you, but we can move on. It's fine. I said he
3: puts her in danger every full moon.
0: That's so weird. You broke up again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I got to admit that I'm not a Dumbledore hater. Yay! Yay! He makes mistakes, sure, but Right. He he's a he's a great character and he's he's comforting. Whenever he shows up in the books, I'm always like, "Oh, yes. This is good."
0: Somebody was enchanted by Dumbledore's delights this past Christmas, <laughs> I think.
2: <laughs> they were really good.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I totally agree with Meg. I think Dumbledore is a great character. He's so complex and interesting, but I think he also messes up a whole lot and I'm more than happy to criticize him.
3: Yeah, like way more than Yoda or Gandalf or anything.
1: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It does seem to be a theme, right? With these wizened, old, magical parental figures. Yeah. They just always mess up.
3: (laughs) And I think reading through the story now, you know, given that we're a little bit older hopefully more mature and a little bit wiser like you can really see just how fallible dumbledore is as a character when you read the book as a kid like oh you love dumbledore because he's like the mentor you know he's he's the head of the school he's the guy that's going to save the day until he falls off the astronomy tower but you know what i mean like (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like as a kid, I think you have a deep appreciation and love for for Dumbledore. As you get older, you can criticize him a little bit more because you get to see a bit more of what he's doing. Like, and I think Snape Snape reveals a lot of that in in Deathly Hallows.
0: Totally get it
1: for sure. It's just like you know when you grow up and you think about people you know in real life. I mean, you're. Perception and an understanding of people change as you get older because you come to realize the adult figures in your life. They're not necessarily perfect and they make mistakes. And that can be kind of a jarring realization to have. Right. So I think this show is just kind of playing out that emotional reaction to realizing Dumbledore is kind of manipulative.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Again. Hannah Montana. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's go listen not perfect. to it. I should have there added that go. to my Slytherin playlist.
1: It's not too late. <laughs> yeah, do it. Something I thought was funny. This is a movieism, but given that we're talking about Wolfstar, um, I rewatched the shrieking shack scene in Prisoner of Azkaban. And there's one point where Sirius and Remus are kind of like bickering, and Snape makes this crack about them arguing like an old married couple. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that, Um, but I wanted to talk more about this connection to HIV/AIDS, the connection to homophobia, through the lens of the Wolf Starship, by sharing a couple of other things that are said in this chapter. Hermione says at one point, after Lupin says that she's the most clever witch of her age, she says, "If I'd been a bit clever, I have I'd have told everyone what you are." ouch. (laughs) Um, They later find out that Dumbledore actually has known the entire time that Lupin is a werewolf and hired him regardless. And Ron asks if Dumbledore is mad for having hired Lupin. And Lupin even says that Dumbledore had to work very hard to convince certain teachers that he was trustworthy. There were some of his colleagues who tried to fight his appointment to the position. I think we know at least one of them. See, Dumbledore is doing something good. Yeah, see, he is. And again, this is um, it definitely harkens to those themes that, you know, Meg, you were just talking about. During this time, it was incredibly difficult for gay people to maintain positions as teachers. Or to hold any kind of job that had them closely working with children because people bought into this fear-based narrative that somehow gay people were going to do these horrible things to children. And it's clear that the assumption in the wizarding world is that a werewolf is not suitable to be around children. Even a werewolf who is you know, receiving treatment for the condition and is very safe. Well, and Dumbledore is a gay man. There's that connection, too. Yep. Oh, good call out.
0: Unfortunately, what um, comes around goes around. I feel like we're seeing some of this a little again in the real world as well in certain states, which is disappointing.
1: For sure.
3: Just looking at the other side of that coin, um, you know, Dumbledore's hiring practices are called into question several times in this book. We talked about Hagrid a lot, taking on care of magical creatures and just not being fully trained and equipped to handle this class. Trelawney, her class just seems like a waste of time for most of the students. And questionable how qualified she is to teach students. And now we have Lupin and... Not because Lupin isn't a good professor. He's probably, you know, top three at the school uh, that we've seen thus far. Uh, but I think it's the risk that his condition poses to these students. Should he, in fact, transform one full moon and go on a rampage throughout the school, he's putting the students in terrible danger. And there's there's not a whole lot to protect against that, right? Like, yes, he's supposed to be taking the Wolfsbane potion, but what if he doesn't? And then is Dumbledore going to be there to ensure that all of the students are safe as a result?
0: I would imagine that's Dumbledore's plan. I, th- I think the Wolfsbane potion takes care of it. I mean, that's a good solution. He's an adult. He knows he needs to take it. Like, sure, sometimes you forget to take your medicine, but- Lupin seems like the type of person who will be on top of it.
1: It also seems like it would be hard for him to miss taking it because we see throughout the book Lupin feeling under the weather when the full moon is coming up. So it's clear that he starts to have physical symptoms that indicate to him, even if he's not watching the moon cycles, which I'm pretty sure he is. um, Even if he's not, he has to know when it's coming. The next couple Yeah, until this moment. You know, <laughs> yeah. this chapter is a notable exception, but I think we can It's a forgive. little busy, yeah. Yeah, we can for- forgive Lupin for this here. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but you have to imagine that there are a lot of parents out there that would be unhappy with the fact that there's a werewolf teaching their students for the, for the sheer fact that something could go wrong.
2: And that's ultimately and we why see Lupin that later resigns. Yeah. Because everyone finds out because of Snape. And like he's he's truly outed by Snape in that way. He comments on people don't want a werewolf teaching their children.
3: This moment, though, also calls Lupin into question in terms of him being very much aware of how Sirius could be getting into the school and where he could likely be hiding out. And, you know, we later learned the Shrieking Shack was built for Lupin, and naturally the Marauders were aware of it. And they would know how to access it. So I think, you know, we've looked throughout this entire book, Lupin being this great teacher, mentor, father figure to Harry, but, you know, he could have revealed earlier on to Dumbledore, to others, how serious could have been navigating his way into and out of the school. He's got clear information that he's not sharing.
1: Yeah. And I think we learn later that it's because he feels guilty and conflicted about it, right? Because Dumbledore has been helping him and all this Wolfstar. time. And Wolfstar, yeah. I mean, again, if we're do- if we're reading this through that lens, I mean, there's that added layer there. Ultimately, if he had gone to Dumbledore and been like, you know, hey, Sirius is my boyf, um, Dumbledore <laughs> would have been like, oh, cool, <laughs> you too, me too
3: but also let i mean let's keep in mind that dumbledore has been covering protecting lupin for a long time like this goes all the way back and we can talk more about it you know in the next couple of chapters but this goes all the way back to when he was in school
2: well and there's probably an aspect of shame there for lupin um to have to tell dumbledore okay so Sirius could be getting in this way because he's an animagus because we all were and it was all for me like there's, yeah. There would be a lot of shame there, I think, to to say, you know, you, I know when I was a kid, you took great measures to keep me safe and to keep everyone else safe. And I went along with my friends doing this dangerous thing anyway. Uh, so that's how this mass murderer could be getting into the castle. And so I think there's an aspect of Lupin just thinking, just praying that like, that's not how it's happening. And just kind of, you know, he's, he's ignoring that possibility almost.
1: Yeah, he's burying his head in the sand for sure. Well, we end this chapter by learning a couple of things. Lupin reveals that he is Mooney, one of the authors of the Marauder's Map, and that he was actually watching the Marauder's Map because he suspected the trio might sneak out to see Hagrid, and that was when he saw Sirius Black on the map colliding with Ron Weasley and Peter Pettigrew. I had a question about this because we know we're in the time loop now. We're already there. As readers, we don't know it yet. But I'm wondering, how does the map work when Harry and Hermione are time turning? Why didn't Lupin see two Harry and Hermione's?
0: Could this be a bit of a plot hole? It feels like they should be there.
2: The only thing I can think of is that for the same reason that Fred and George never noticed hey, Ron is sleeping with a man named Peter Pettigrew overnight. Like, (laughs) they're just not looking. Uh, Lupin is so fixated on seeing the trio going down to Hagrid's that maybe he's not going to look a little off into the forest and see that there's another Harry and Hermione there. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: That could be. I mean the movies do a good job of like making the map easy to follow. But imagine how many people are actually on that map. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, where's Waldo? (laughs) It's going to be hard (laughs) to find their names once, let alone twice. So Mm -hmm. that, that makes sense.
1: For sure. But it feels like with the map, anytime this comes up, the only excuse we're able to fall back on is they just weren't looking. And It becomes kind of hard to accept that as a reason as time goes on. I mean, Ron was literally sleeping with Peter Pettigrew for three years. Nobody noticed.
0: (laughs) Plot hole. Yeah, ultimately a plot hole.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. We say it with love. We criticize because we care. Right.
0: Peace, love, plot holes. Again, nobody's perfect. (laughs) No!
1: (laughs) Thank you, Miley.
0: <laughs> Hannah Montana. Thank you, Hannah. Montana.
1: Oh, excuse me. That was Hannah.
0: The alter ego.
1: <laughs> uh, well, speaking of alter egos, nice. the chapter ends <laughs> with serious revealing Scabber's true identity. He is indeed Peter Pettigrew.
3: Did we find this to be a satisfying revelation? And maybe we have to think back years ago to when we first read the book. But it was just like, oh, my gosh. Or I think just so. Like, yeah.
1: I think so. I remember feeling that way. Yeah.
0: And again, reading this chapter, it's just like all the misdirection, getting back to what we were talking about with Sirius really not doing a good job of uh, explaining to Harry he's a good guy and instead terrifying them and the reader. Like, there's a lot of misdirection here. So, yeah, I I really enjoyed rereading this chapter and I thought it had a satisfying ending.
2: Yeah, I... Think if I read this for the first time as an adult, I would have really liked that. Um, unfortunately, I can't remember my thoughts when I first read this because I was eight years old. Uh and I <laughs> I, I wish, I wish I could remember. Uh yeah. but funnily funnily enough, the only memory I have of reading Prisoner of azkaban is of it being nighttime, me being up in my bed under the covers with the flashlight, opening Aww. actually this chapter.
0: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do get like flashes of memories re- rereading some of these scenes. Uh, thinking back, it reminds me of reading this for the first time. But yeah, it's like patchy in terms of my my memories.
1: Yeah. This one does stick out to me because I remember the shock of feeling like, oh my God, this character that we've known for three years at this point is actually a person. <laughs> and has been hiding in plain sight the whole time. I remember that feeling really, really cool as a reveal.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's overall it's really great for world building as well because if you think back just even to the whopping willow we're we're introduced to it at the beginning of of Chamber of Secrets and now, We find out that there's this secret hidden passageway underneath it that goes all the way into Hogsmeade and the Shrieking Shack, which, you know, gets name dropped a couple of times. And so it's just a lot of things coming together at once. And so I'm cool with it. Uh, You know, Peter Pettigrew. Does anyone
2: kind of view Scabbers and Peter as different characters? Yes. Like reading the first two books. With this hindsight, you're like, wow, this this per- rat is a person who killed a lot of people. But when you're reading it, like when Scabbers, uh, you know, is is chewing the sheets or he bites Coyle, you're like, oh, Scabbers,
1: love that little guy. It's interesting to think back, knowing what we know now, given this revelation. Thinking back to that first day on the Hogwarts Express, when Scabbers finds himself in a compartment with none other than Harry Potter. His mind must have been blown mm-hmm. in that moment. <laughs> He's going, holy cheese. <laughs> oh, I
0: love that.
1: That's the episode title. Holy cheese.
0: Holy cheese. <laughs> holy
1: cheese, yeah.
0: Holy cheese.
1: Well, yeah, interestingly, I feel like this is a, it, It's a bit of a shift. We actually don't have any odds and ends this week, but I think it's because we went pretty deep on this chapter during the main discussion. So a lot of things that probably would have ended up in odds and ends, we actually ended up covering in the discussion.
0: Agreed. Great work team. Fun discussion. And now it's time for MVP of the week.
3: I'm going to give it to Crookshanks. Just (laughs) causing a whole lot of chaos in this chapter, but, uh, getting us to the uh, the end, or kind of the end. You know what I mean. He's connecting a lot of threads together, so I give it to him.
1: I'm gonna give it to Lupin. Again, I feel like of everyone in this whole Shrieking shack encounter, he remains the most level-headed, and I think he's still teaching his students.
2: For standing on a broken leg and saying, if you want to kill Harry, you'll have to kill us too, I'm going to give it to Ron mainly because movie Ron deserved better than to have Hermione steal this line. And I think that if I could have any Ron line that was given to Hermione actually be given to Ron in the movie, I think it would be this one. Yep.
0: You three had the best picks this week, I think. So I was struggling. Um, I'm just going to give it to Sirius, but for keeping readers in suspense with all of his... uh... His poor handling of the situation earlier in the chapter. He's keeping it dramatic. He's making this chapter a good read. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, a quick reminder, if you like what we do here on the show, visit our Patreon and pledge at the Slug Club level to receive the MuggleCast Beanie. Time is running out. You must pledge and fill out the form by August 1st. We can only do the show thanks to your support. So thanks, everybody, so much. It's a shaky podcast industry out there, and our Patreon helps keep this show running smoothly. Next week will be a Muggle Mail episode, so stay tuned for that. If you have any feedback about today's show or the chapters ahead or the previous chapters, and again, any MuggleCast memories, send an owl to MuggleCast at gmail.com or use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. For the MuggleCast memories, send a voice message, just record it using the voice memo app on your phone, and then email us that file, or you can use our phone number, which is one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. 368 4453 For those MuggleCast memories, remember, we need those submitted by Friday, July 28th, because we're, we're going to be recording that birthday episode the next day. And now it's time for quizage.
3: Last week's quizich question, what spell does Sirius Black use on Harry and Hermione? The correct answer is, of course, Expelliarmus.
0: Expelliarmus!
3: <laughs> was that the Snape impersonation of it?
0: That was the Snape version, yeah.
3: Yeah. I just saw uh, Chamber of Secrets on the flight home from Vegas, so it's very oh. fresh in my head when he does that to Lockhart. Uh, correct answers were submitted by the flea behind Sirius's left ear. My disarming spell casts all the wands to the yard. Dang right. It's better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, I think they meant to say, dang right. It's better than yours, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth K. Nifflers are the best. I don't know what to put for a name, so I'll just say you are awesome. I love you all. I, I sorry, I love y'all. I, I love you, y'all. <laughs> this is going terribly. I should let Meg do it. Uh, <laughs> Joyoto s pickle pack, pickle pack, bring back pickle pack, please. Jenny Aww. Penny, furious, serious, wobbles. Molly, pig, the owl, a much better pet than that traitor rat Scabbergrew. <laughs> Professor <laughs> Professor Stumblemore, that Muggleborn taking Muggle studies for an easy A. I can't think of a clever enough nickname to get a shout out, but I'm going to keep playing anyway. And when the shack is a-rockin', don't come (laughs) a-knockin'.
0: Oh my goodness.
2: Well, uh, I did Eric's work here and uh, I chose a question for next week so I can read that. Next week's question. According to the Animagus Registrar Hermione looks at, how many registered Animagi have there been this century? Ooh, good question. You can submit your answers at mugglecast.com slash quizich.
3: And Eric, Chloe, and Meg, right? Yeah. We'll be at LeakyCon 2023 in Chicago.
0: Well, and you, right? You didn't, oh, did you I didn't not mention yourself. <laughs> you said Eric, <laughs> Chloe, Are and Meg. Are you not going anymore?
3: <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> um,
0: I'm still recovering from Vegas. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Eric, Chloe, Meg, and I will be at LeakyCon 2023 in Chicago this summer from August 4th through the 6th. Uh, Listeners interested in registering for the con can visit leakycon.com and enter code Muggle during checkout for a $10 discount. They actually just confirmed that Elijah Wood is joining uh, the guests at LeakyCon this summer. Uh, We are going to be doing our live panel on Saturday, August 5th at one15 on the second stage. So if you're going to LeakyCon, definitely uh, make sure that you're there on Saturday afternoon. Uh, A couple other panels that we're doing on Friday, August 4th, 2.30 to 3.30, Percy Jackson is Greek Harry Potter, which is British Star Wars, which is Space Narnia. no (laughs) idea what to expect uh, in that, uh, but that should be a lot of fun. And then also on Saturday in the morning, 10 to 11, mundane or miracle the morality of magic uh, that one should be a lot of fun and there were still uh, finalizing a few other panels that eric and i are going to be doing so just keep an eye out on social uh, as well as the podcast and then wrapping up leaky con we are going to be doing a meetup on friday august 4th at seven thirty. 30 um, at this time though we've reached our muggle limit um, but we're definitely going to let uh, listeners know if we're able to engorgio the space. So we're working out a few more details to see if we can get uh, a bigger space. But right now we did reach our limit. Uh, but we look forward to seeing everybody, whether it's at the meetup, whether it's at LeakyCon, it's going to be a lot of fun in just a couple weeks.
0: couple other reminders. If you're an Apple podcast user and you'd prefer to support us there for just two ninety nine dollars a month, you can receive ad-free and early access to MuggleCast right within the Apple podcast app. If you're enjoying MuggleCast and think other muggles would too, tell a friend about the show. And we'd also appreciate if you left a review in your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Our username is MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Threads. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew, not a
3: Ken. I'm Micah, not a Barbie.
1: I'm Laura, aspiring to be a Barbie. I'm Meg, the ghost of a Barbie.
0: See everybody next time. Goodbye. Bye, Bye. y'all.